a privilege to be here again, to study together again. And on the topic that is my current book project on calendars and the Holocaust. Filling time, saving time. And I always, anytime I'm teaching, I'd like to start out by noting the day in the calendar because I find that it's important to locate any kind of study together in the time that that shapes either explicitly or subliminally the kind of study that one undertakes. So today is March 2nd. I think I've been traveling around a lot, so you'll pardon me. It is March 2nd, yes? March 2nd. So interesting day in its own right, particularly following March 1st and the beginning of March, because unbeknownst to many, March 1st was for a long time, actually, New Year's Day. And you can kind of see that within the Gregorian calendar by the English names of the last part of the English calendar. September is like septuplet, seven. October with the oc, like octave is eight. November, nine. December, 10, like in decade. So, December 10, I thought it was the 12th month, but that is uh, calibrated according to an ancient Roman calendar that then was picked up again in, in, in medieval Europe and had March 1st as the new year so that September would come out to be the 7th month, October the 8th month, November the 9th month, December the 10th month. So we're on the heels of a new year, and look, you just missed your golden opportunity. But it will come again. Got it all. But there's another calendar. And that's also going to be the, the focus of tonight's discussion, which is a Jewish calendar. And today in the Jewish calendar, tonight is the 27th day of the month of Adar Rishon, the first month of Adar. There's two months of Adar. And the month of Adar is special because it seemed to be a month where we're commanded to increase our joy. Misha Niknas Adar Marbim Simha. When this month comes in, Jews have to become more joyous. Now that's that's quite a nice command in terms of commands. Be more joyous, be more happy. Great. And it is. It's a tremendous time, which culminates in the holiday of Purim shortly down the road in a few weeks. But there also is, when dealing with this subject, some tension, which at the end I hope to circle back to, which is here we are, commanded to increase our joy. In dealing with the Holocaust, it's very hard to do that. Because the Holocaust, no matter what way one turns it, twists it, shapes it, is about evil, suffering, and atrocity. So we have our work cut out for us. But we'll try. So I hope that I'll share some remarks. 
Um, we'll have time for discussion, and time permitting, we'll see. There may be a story, hopefully relevant, that will come at the end. The importance of calendars for Jews is such that Rabbi Beryl Wine, a popular historian of Jewish life culture, has speculated on the conundrum that we're kind of playfully often asked. If you're marooned on a desert island, which book would you take? Now, and some might say Don Quixote. Some may say Brothers Karamazov. And there's a whole gamut of possibility. Rabbi Wine has said for a Jew, the book they would take is not even really a book. It's the calendar, meaning that's how central it is. Another important personage, Rabbi Weinberg, says, we are a people through our calendar, a nation sanctified through time. Sanctified through time, meaning time is the medium by which one brings a sense of the sacred into life, and the calendar is the vehicle for that. A critical historian, Sasha Stern, has in a more generalized way talked about that the calendar is an essential point of reference for interpersonal relations and time-bound communal activity. Quite important. The essential point of reference for interpersonal relations and time-bound communal activity. So the importance, the centrality of this calendar, and I'll explain something briefly more about the Jewish calendar to put us on equal wavelength with what is this Jewish calendar, how does it operate, how does it stand in relation to the Gregorian calendar, and why is that important for the Holocaust? I'll go into that in just a minute. So we see, though, the, the importance of the calendar to Jewish life, Jewish culture, and Jewish history. The calendar in the Holocaust, there's been important use of the calendar in dealing with the Holocaust, but in ways different than I'm trying to do mainly, with the sense of historians needing to have the calendar there to tell the story, to narrate what has happened in the Holocaust. So that the World War II came to be sorrowfully on September 1st, 1939, with the German invasion of Poland, the movement of the Germans to Eastern Europe took place when Germany made a surprise attack on Russia called Operation Barbarossa on the 22nd of June, 1941. And even more with trying to find out whether there was a date and time that the terribleness of the final solution was actually pronounced. So that's occupied historians, but that's not what we're dealing with here. Also with looking at the way that the perpetrators abused the Jewish calendar, carrying out attacks, for example, on the Jewish Sabbath to add salt to the wounds, as it were, by humiliating the sacred times of the Jews particularly by desecrating holidays. That also is not a fundamental part of what we're looking at. Rather, it is the way in which the Holocaust 
by definition, in a certain way, uprooted the victims from their communities and thus put life in a situation of ongoing chaos. One didn't have a home, usually, or their own home. One didn't have not most of their personal possessions. One's life was constantly on, in danger. And so, time also was under assault. It is said regularly in what I've read and what I've heard and what I've been told that it was extraordinary hard simply to keep track of the days. Thus enters the calendar and define the Holocaust by counting the days. Looking at the way that for Jews in ghettos, in hiding, even in concentration camps, that the calendar became a resource to try to count and take account of the days, to defy the onslaught of what was taking place. In Yaffe Eliak's words, the Holocaust placed human beings outside the sphere of societal time and place, and the calendar by hook and by crook was able to reattach life to time once again. And though there have been numbers of very interesting studies about time in the Holocaust, again, the calendar itself has been surprisingly neglected. So that's what we're going to pursue tonight. So the by calendars, both the Gregorian calendar, what we use in America, for example, to, that, to count the days and count the months and the years, but also the Jewish calendar. Let me say something then briefly about the Jewish calendar. The Jewish calendar is its own independent calendar. For many of you, you will hear about Jewish holidays like Passover, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, maybe, and they'll kind of come there in the middle of the Gregorian calendar, and they're kind of these floating objects like balloons that came up from above, and Jews kind of pull down those balloons and hold them for a certain time, and then let them float away. But there's actually a calendar that they're attached to in all the various colors of those balloons. And that calendar is also a 12-month calendar, like the Gregorian, with an exception once, seven times in 19 years, there's a leap year, which in the Jewish calendar is not just one day, like we have February 29th, sometimes every four years, but an entire month that's added to the Jewish calendar, like in this year. So 12 or 13 months, the months last for either 29 or 30 days. The Jewish calendar is a basically a lunar calendar, meaning the month comes into being, each month that comes into being is birthed into being by, at the time of the new moon. When we don't see any moon, that's exactly when the Jewish month begins. 
So it's a lunar calendar, but in contrast to the Islamic calendar, anyone, any Muslims here? Yes? So in contrast to the Muslim calendar, also a lunar calendar, but one that has it so holidays migrate to different seasons. So Ramadan could be in the fall one year, the winter the next year, spring not, not quite the next year, but over a number of years, and end up in the summer. Jewish holidays are biblically ordained to be in certain seasons. So Passover is always in the spring. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur always in the end of the summer, in the fall. And so are linked there. And that's then this adding of a month to be able to allow the solar, the, the lunar year to catch up with the solar year and even things out in a way that we don't have time to go into in detail. There's a few other points about the Jewish calendar. That also a seven-day week that begins on Sunday and ends on Saturday, which is the Jewish Sabbath. The days of the week do not have names, however, but have numbers. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, and day seven does have a name, the Sabbath, or Shabbat, or Shabbos, as it's pronounced in Yiddish. The Jewish day begins not with the day, but with the night. So we're at the beginning of the day. Isn't that great for students who want to study? Oh, the days just began, you know. Now, so, and that's according to the Bible, because in creation we hear that God, he created the first Erev, then Boker, first evening, and then the morning. So according to the Bible, the night came first, and then the day followed. So the Jewish calendar also adheres to that schema. And Finally, we're in the year right now, 5,771, which is the date, according to Jewish tradition, that creation took place 5,771 years ago. And that's the dating that is traditionally used for the Jewish calendar. So now you can go back and your housemates and say, gosh, you know, there's a Jewish calendar. I mean, you know, and it's there. And this Jewish calendar, which we'll soon see, was one that European Jews knew more or less equally to the Gregorian calendar. So the European Jews, during the time of the Holocaust, were what I refer to as bifocal or bimodal or diglossic, if you know that linguistic term, which refers to kind of equal importance to two different languages. So these calendars operated then for Jews constantly in concert with one another. And we'll come to see then how this reference to the calendars is played out in defining the Holocaust by counting the days. The sense of crisis of time, crisis of time, coming with the Holocaust, took place even before the war broke out. Usually, of course, the Holocaust is charted according to different times, but for our purposes, we'll say 1939, when the 
war broke out and the Germans invaded Poland to May 8, 1945, when the final liberation happened, the ceasefire was accepted. So even before that, one Yoshua Baran in Vilna, Lithuania, Jewish man, in August of 1939, printed, he was also a printer, he printed a Jewish calendar for 10 years, for the next 10 years. And at the end of this calendar, he writes a poem saying that we know, this is August 1939, we know that war is looming indelibly on the horizon, and that we recall in World War I, 25 years before, that the war threw everything into chaos. And so this calendar will attempt to try to ward off the chaos that is sure to come. And the, the loss of keeping track of days that is sure to come with the onset of this war. Calendar was a 10-year calendar. And the copy of this calendar that I have in my possession, which I comes from Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Study Center and Memorial Center and Archive in Israel, I have there, was given to the archives there by a colleague of mine, David Silberklang's mother, Holocaust survivor, she was given a copy of this calendar in 1947 in a displaced persons camp. She was given this ca- copy of this calendar intact, except for one missing page, with the idea that she, even at that time, could still benefit with timekeeping by the use of this calendar. As the war broke out, the Germans invaded Poland. And as you will recall, for those of you who have studied and those of you who have had it, that later that year in 1939, and then in 1940, more generally, in the Polish major cities and some of the towns, ghettos were set up by the Germans as ways to imprison the Jews of Poland, and the Lodz ghetto in spring of 1940, the Warsaw ghetto in the fall of 1940, and large groups of Jews were moved to the worst part of the city. They were often imprisoned, either behind a fence or a wall. They were then housed in very decrepit conditions with minimal food and suffered disease rampantly, and there was tremendous loss of life. And many of these ghettos then were in existence for two, three years, and then eventually the population was, for the most part, annihilated. But as we see, if you turn to the the handout, there were calendars that were officially set forth in ghettos to be able to chronicle the time. Then with the calendar on top in 1942. And for those that can read Hebrew, you see it's Tufshin Base, which is 5702. And 
Tufshin Gimel 5703. And then you see the dates that are there parallel the secular Gregorian calendar. January, it's actually in German, so it's Januar, which close to the English January, February, the next month. And then paired to that, on the right, is in Hebrew, the name of the month, Tevet, or Shavat, or Adar, the month that we're in now. And then down below, are on each side, it's quite blurred, but in German, the days of the week, Zontag, Sunday, Montag, Dienstag in German, and then in parallel on the right in Yiddish, the common parlance of Polish Jews, that then set forth the days. And below, it says the times for the holidays, if there were any in that month, and the time in which holidays would enter, which is very important to Jewish life to know when a sacred day is coming in. And most fascinating to me, most poignant, and in a certain way most troubling, are the listing of the fast days, which there are five during the Jewish year, days that are fasting, special days of repentance, like Yom Kippur, that you know of as a fast day. And for Jews, that means a fast either from morning till night, or a fast for Yom Kippur from 24, 25 hours from the beginning of night, one night when the day comes in to the end of the day on the next night. So the fast days were listed as well with the time. Why is that remarkable? It was remarkable to my mind, personally, because here is a community that is suffering terribly the ravages of hunger. So much so that thousands are dying every month. And yet, because there is a questing to be able to maintain the counting of days, and the counting of weeks, and the counting of months, according to tradition, that even the fast days need to be listed in order to keep a coherence and an integrity to life at a time when it is under assault. And then if you turn the page to the next, on the back, you'll see a photograph of in the Loge ghetto where children and others are assembling this calendar. And I find it a very moving photograph of the children involved in this enterprise. And I don't, don't know the names. I hope at some point I'll be able to find out just who they were and what were the conditions under which they were doing it and the rewards I would hope that the children were given for the task, taking part in the task of making this calendar. But it's a remarkably resonant image of seeing this as a community endeavor to put together a calendar that was there. And of course, this calendar then was one that was according to religious precepts, but it was a calendar that was bifocal for all kinds of Jews in the Loge ghetto during this time. In hiding, Jews were, in a way, even more cut off from time. Because, thank God, Jews who were in hiding during the time of the Holocaust, hiding meant that 
they would escape from the ghetto or from deportation or from their town and go usually with non-Jews into their house or into their barn or into a hideaway and be secreted there away from the Germans or away from other locals who were allied with the Germans or felt that the Jews were simply too dangerous to have around. But the Jews who were there were usually cut off from communication with the Jewish community at large, even though, thank God, some of the time they were safe, at least for a period of time. So they were, in this being cut off, there was a sense of how to maintain a contact with the Jewish community of the world, with the Jewish community of history. And so there are remarkable examples of calendars being made, being fashioned by those who were in hiding in order to be able to create, as it were, their own society secreted off from the world. So two examples of Rabbi Yoshua Neuvert, who is preeminent rabbi in Jerusalem today, advanced age of 85, at the time of the Holocaust, was hiding with his family in an apartment in Amsterdam, where they hid from approximately 1942 to 1945 with his father, his mother, and two brothers, and they survived the war, thank God. They, however, did not leave the apartment for two and a half years, had the blinds closed all of that time so that they wouldn't be able to be seen by any looking in the window. And he expresses that there were numbers of miracles that happened constantly that had it so even those in the building did not report them. So when Joshua Norbert was 16 years old or so, he fashioned a Jewish calendar for three years by having, he had one, one particular sacred book which kind of gives guidelines but for many people, they wouldn't be able to make such a calendar with all the intricacies that are involved, but he was able to do it. And then it became known that he had the calendar through the Dutch underground. The, photo, the calendar was photographed and was taken to Jews either in the underground and to, it said, Jews who were in concentration camps to help them keep track of the time. And it too has Sabbath times, holiday times, because we can say the function of the calendar, the Jewish calendar, is to count the days, and at this time to count in defiance, but also to, to make clear what is sacred time so one could take care of that. A counterpart in Poland during this time, Rav. Rabbi Shlomo Yosef Shiner, who with, was hidden in that case by a Christian family named Matyas, who had been an employee of his. And the Matyases themselves had five children. In winter of 1942, when the Shiners had to flee their village with the threat of their life after the Germans came to decimate it, they wandered in the forest for several months, then out of desperation came to the Matyases, and the Matyases took them in and hid them for two and a half years. 
If the Nazis would have been caught by the Germans, they would have all been murdered, and the house would have been burned down. Not to mention that the Shiners, too. But they, the, the entire Shiner family survived the war in that way. And during the time, Shlomo Shiner made a beautiful calligraphed calendar with the secular dates, also the Jewish dates, then Polish names, Hebrew names, Yiddish names, assisted by his son, who I spoke to a few weeks ago, who when I asked him, how did you, how did you do this? Meaning, you were in a hidden room that was mostly dark. So he said, we had to hold it up because there was light coming through a small opening. And we wrote, holding it up like this. I said, so did you do that? How long? You did that all day? He says, no, we couldn't do that all day. So it's most two to three hours at different kinds of intervals, holding and then sketching. And the third example, those are both conventional, if bold and remarkable endeavors to keep track of time and to count the days. A third example is equally remarkable but unconventional, and that's on the third page. This is a kind of customized calendar. This is how I refer to it. You can, you can help me with the term you think. Made by Nico Herschel. Nico Herschel, who was Dutch also. And in the end of 1942, Nico Herschel and his wife were expecting their first child. They were given deportation orders to be sent off. They pleaded with the authorities that since his, she was seven months pregnant, they should be, receive a reprieve, which was granted. She gave birth to the child in December of 1942. And then, a few months later, she was, they were given their deportation orders again. And they knew, they, they didn't know, that's unfair to say, they intimated that deportation would have meant a, a large possibility that they would be sent to their death. So they arranged for their child, the baby, Svi Yosef, written at the top of the page, to be placed with colleagues, Gentile colleagues, which they did. And the father then drew this customized calendar for him. And I'm just holding up, you can kind of see the calendar in its colored variety. Maybe I'll, I'll pass that around so you can note the kind of wonderful shading that is given to this in the colors. And he gave this along with the baby to be with the baby as his legacy. And so as you look, it's in Dutch, but you can kind of make out that the first panel at the top left is the stork bringing the basket and then we have developmentally Svi Yosef turning two and being potty trained even in crawling and becoming a young man and involved in sports and eventually in the next to last column choosing to go to Israel after many years after the war, having survived the war and the parents also coming to join. And then in the very last row that he marries, and then a child is born. Who here, it's the child is born to this baby, 
at the time. But some 25 years later, named Pinchas. And the last frame is written in Hebrew, Mazel Tov, congratulations, at the time of the ritual circumcision of the child, which is seen as a tremendously joyous rite of passage. So this was sent with the baby. The parents were, in fact, deported to the death camp of Sobobor and murdered. And the baby then came out with the war, was eventually placed with his grandparents, and followed in many respects this, this the trajectory of this calendar, not so much deliberately as we can say almost subliminally that the shape of his life was such as orchestrated by this, lives in Israel with several children. He has, is now penning for me his commentary on this calendar from his perspective. So I can try to integrate that and what it meant to him means to him today. So this unconventional kind of way of charting time was a projection into the future, creating a future when the future was certainly under collapse. And most who talk about time and the Holocaust emphasize the tremendous, overwhelming, almost pathological presence of the present and the evaporation of the past and the collapse of the future. So what the calendar does is, in fact, to reinscribe that past and that future that was under siege. Another way, fascinating way, that timekeeping took place calendrically was through diaries, through diaries. And diaries are a crucial part of study of the Holocaust, of response to the Holocaust. They were something that, thank God, a number of persevering individuals the number in at least the hundreds and probably much more, though we've lost, we lost much of what was written during the Holocaust. But we have uh, at least several hundred diaries that were kept during the war. And those diaries, of course, one, many of you have kept your own diaries and you usually date the entries. And diaries are important for what they tell about the response. But I believe they're also important as timekeeping vehicles. And the one, one of the examples that I bring, we only have time for this tonight, but um, is one of the most important diaries from the war. That Moshe Flinker, who was 16 years old when he began writing this diary in 1942. Uh, Moshe Flinker was a Dutch-born Jew at the time of the occupation of Holland in 1942, sorry, he and his family fled from Holland to Belgium for various reasons. They thought they would be safer hiding in Brussels. And they hid an apartment and lived under assumed Gentile aliases. And Moshe began to keep a diary. As we see, if you turn the page there with Moshe Flinker on top, the diary below, he wrote this diary in Hebrew. He was uh, competent in something on the order of five or six languages. Also used his time during the war 
in which there was much boredom because one was cut off from regular activities to study Arabic because he was an ardent Zionist and believed to, that he would go to Israel and that Israel needed, above all, great diplomats who could deal with the Arab countries who surrounding and live in peace. And how, how right in a certain way he was. But unfortunately, Moshe and his family were uh, informed on by a Jew after living two years by a Jew on just before Passover of 1944. They were then deported, and his parents and Moshe were murdered in Auschwitz. And his six siblings, thank God, all survived, went to Israel. And I've had the privilege of speaking with three of his sisters about the diary, as well as seeing the original notebooks in which they were kept, which is very important, as we'll see in a minute. He then began the diary by noting both the Jewish date, and now you know, the Jewish calendar, which has names of its own in the month of Kislev, comes around Hanukkah time. So the 15th day of Kislev, 5703, and November 24th, 1942. And writes, for some time now, I've wanted to note down every evening what I've been doing during the day. But for various reasons, I have only got around to it tonight. First, let me explain why I'm doing this. And I must start by describing why I came here to Brussels. And the diary is punctuated by this incredibly wonderful, boyish kind of playfulness and self-indulgence and the most profound theological probings of why this should be happening to the Jews. Why would God let this happen? The family was passionately religious and still is. So, the next six weeks of the diary, Moshe uses only the secular date. Only the secular date. Which seems no big shakes, okay. Secular date there with the entries. And he goes up to December 28th. And that's the last. And then if we turn the page, and for those who read Hebrew, and um, we'll, I'll explain in a second, so those who don't will be able to follow, you see that on Kof Dalid Teves, Tufshin Gimel, meaning the 24th day of the month of Tevet, 5703, he enters it according to the Jewish calendar, and from here on out, only the Jewish calendar date is used. So it's as if at this moment, he has decided, keeping this diary in Hebrew, spending the days maneuvering in the streets under Gentile alias, and then coming to mark his calendar dates with the Jewish calendar, as if he is creating a symbolic Jewish domain to live in when there is really no Jewish space to be had, not only in Brussels, but in Europe, in a sense. And that's my thesis about the switch here. And he was propelled to do that. It seems um, he doesn't say exactly why the calendar switch doesn't refer to it explicitly. But I've checked the original notebooks, and he indeed makes this move there. And it seems like he had read a treatise by a great rabbi, Rabbi Bernstein, on the calendar 
that he had obtained during this time, and that led him, that propelled him. But there's something else, something else remarkable. If you turn the page, you see that in the English translation, which most, most of us who read this iron, I urge you to do it, it's um, available on its own in libraries, out of print, sorrowfully, but available in Alexander Zapruder's fine book called Salvage Pages. So the English translation, as you see at the bottom, has this entry January 4th, 1943. There's no reference to the change of the date. We don't know it at all. We wouldn't know it. It uses just the secular calendar from the second entry on. So misses whatever drama is there. And Moshe goes on there, almost nothing at the bottom of the page. Worth noting has happened to me recently. They say that in Russia all goes well. The Germans are retreating on the southern front. The newspapers say that they are fighting east of Rostov. And when they write that there is fighting east of some town, then almost surely the fighting has taken place in the town or even west of it. Because trying to read what they hear on the news or read in the news through newspapers or radio reports um, to read between the lines. This has been the case many times already in North Africa. Yesterday evening, a Jewish woman came over here. Her coming has revealed yet another side of our troubles, which I never before imagined. It goes on to searchingly and feelingly report on the terrible plight of this woman. But here's the missing drama added to this. The translators who have gone to the parallel secular date, January 4th, got the date wrong. It's not January 4th. And for those that are interested, I can tell you how you can find out about that. The date was January 1st. So at exactly the time that the secular year was coming into being, is the time Moshe chose for this switch into Jewish time. In other words, it could no longer live except in that Jewish domain. And the Jewish domain had to counter, had to take precedence. And just to add it to that is an anecdote. One of his sisters told me that they were living in an apartment on a corner in Brussels, and um, on that, that uh, December 31st, as January 1st drew close, they were living over a cafe. And the noise increased as they got closer and closer to midnight. And the celebrations were going on. And his parents, who of course were living under an alias, felt compelled to at one stage, go down to the cafe and participate in the activities so they would be able to keep their cover. So here's Moshe there, this diary. Then, his family compelled to live a double life, and his choosing exactly this moment to turn the calendar into a way to count the days in an extraordinarily special way. Uh, there were also calendars made outside 
of continental Europe as a way to be able to respond to what was taking place. And just one mention of a very special one was a calendar book that was brought into being by Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson in fall of 1942, um, when he had just a year earlier or so come to the United States by the skin of his teeth, fleeing from France, and, um, and then developed the calendar that was a book called Hayom Yom, From Day to Day, which has a listing of customs and practices and teachings from the Hasidic tradition with only the Jewish calendar for 1942 and 1943. Tufshin Gimel, Tufshin Dalit. And uh, Rabbi Schneerson eventually became famous as the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the most recent Lubavitcher Rebbe. But at this time, he was the son-in-law to the Rebbe. And he saw that this was a response to be done. His wife's sister and her husband, Shana Hornstein, had been trapped in the Warsaw Ghetto. And when he, the first entry of this calendar in, in December, Really, it's, it's Kislev again in the Jewish calendar. First entry is just after his sister-in-law has been deported to her death and his brother-in-law, Menach Mendel Hornstein, to his death in Treblinka. So these events are frighteningly close. And as we read, as you turn the page, this is the introduction there in Yiddish in their Itzdiger Zeit, and you see the translation from the Yiddish on the right. At the present time when the world trembles, when all the world shudders with the birth pangs of the Mashiach, of the Messiah, for God, this phrase, remarkable, God has set fire to the walls of exile. It's the duty of every Jew, man and woman, old and young, to ask themselves, what have I done and what am I doing to alleviate the birth pangs of the Mashiach and to merit the total redemption which will come through our righteous Mashiach, the righteous Messiah. So one of the ways that Jews have traditionally responded to suffering is with the hope that the suffering that is being endured is actually a prelude to the messianic time which will be on the horizon and which will deliver those who are suffering so terribly and thus give a, a meaning to that suffering. And here, a kind of, adds the rabbi, a kind of active part. What, what we are doing through prayer, through psalms, through good deeds, to be able to have that take place. Unfortunately, the Messiah didn't come during this time. But the rabbis calendar book was such to try to turn time into something meaningful, especially to those who were either had fled Europe or were in Europe or who were vigilant over the plight of Europe during this particular time. The final loops back to the beginning. I mentioned 
that in my contention, from what I've seen, the Jews who were living in Europe during this time were bifocal, meaning living by both calendars. The secular Gregorian calendar, as we saw in the first, right there, the pairing, one right next to the other, January next to Tefet, were bifocal, had their eyes on two calendars, constantly interacting. Um, in historiography of the Holocaust, in the writing of overviews of the Holocaust, the calendar itself, really, has had a very marginal place. So for those who are familiar, you go to the histories written by Gerald Reitlinger, for example, Leon Pugliakov in the early 1950s, Raoul Hilberg at the end of the 1950s, Lucy Davidovitz in the 1970s, Martin Gilbert in the 1980s. The calendar has a negligible presence. It's of course there because there are historians and they say on September 1st, 1939 is when the war broke out and they date different things. But in terms of the structure of the narrative of the Holocaust, telling the story of the Holocaust, calendar is marginal. Then we come to the state of the art overview of the Holocaust, the narrative that most of us who are, try to be scholars of the Holocaust are indebted to remarkably for telling the story with a finesse of detail but with a humaneness and particularly with bringing in the voice of the victims is the book by Saul Friedlander who himself was a child survivor of the Holocaust and in 2007 published Years of Extermination. And if you look at that table of contents, every chapter is headed with the calendar. Every chapter. The calendar has moved front and center. And even though Saul Friedlander doesn't bring this together, I believe that his own turn to making the voices of the victim a central part of the chronicle of the Holocaust and the calendar as a structuring principle are linked. But I would contend, and I hope by this time you at least have appreciation if you don't share this part of the argument, that in order to do justice to the experience of European Jewry, that the structuring principle needs not to be one calendar, but two. Events need to be periodized. Need to, the chapters need to be also with an eye toward the Jewish calendar. Because there was a bifocal dimension that was there. And if it's only one calendar, one is not truly being is not fully, not even partially, I would say, capturing the Jewish experience and the Jewish response to this event. So what we've seen in my remarks tonight, I hope, is the centrality of the calendar to the Jewish experience, the way in which previous Holocaust thinking has only touched on the calendar in ways that weren't really focusing on victim response, the ways the calendar 
uh, were made. We didn't really go into the concentration camps for lack of time, forgive me, but in ghettos, in hiding, um, and also through diaries, the counting of days to divide the Holocaust took place. And even outside the orbit of Europe, there were attempts to try to redeem time through the calendar. And finally, the way in which this bifocal, diglossic experience of Jewish life and culture, which continues today, needs to be honored, not because one's a Jew or a religious Jew or an observant Jew, but as a scholar, to accurately record and chronicle the experience of those who were immersed in the event. It seems the least we could do is to integrate that dimension. Thank you. There has basically come to be one, yes, one normative, exactly, one normative calendar, but there have been uh, the, the history of the Jewish calendar itself has been a beleaguered history where uh, it uh, began with a, a calendar that was predicated on the, the scene of the new moon and the bearing witness to that and then shifted to a calendar that was done through calculation at a time of persecution. And yet there also were contested versions of the calendar that were put forth at different points in time, particularly around the 8th, 9th century. But there have been others. And it's this calendar which came into being more or less as we have it around the 4th century that has, uh, that has the day. But you're, you're wonderfully, wonderfully uh, perceptive to think of it as not just just always being there. But today, I think it's fair to say that unlike the Christian tradition, which continues to function according to uh, different calendars in different parts of the world, the Jewish calendar is, I think, uniform. And in fact, one of the arguments for the, the particular triumph of this calendar is the kind of... You know, the kind of uh, unity that it attempted to inspire among groups who were uh, not always in sync with one another on other issues. One of the things the calendar does is to share timekeeping. I mean, that's why the diaries are so intriguing, because a diary is not, is not usually shared, say in the case of Moshe Flinker, it was not a shared document. It was not a shared vehicle where the calendars that we were talking about, all of them were, meaning they were a way to be able to count the days, to, to, to gain a narrative of time that could be shared and that could be responsible to, in Jewish life, to the distinction between the sacred and the profane. And that that... that building of a community by the calendar itself, which took place, say, in these families that were cut off from everything else, but they, they, as they were living in these, in a Gentile household, they could create 
a united and shared dimension of time that was every bit as potent as those who lived in, the, in a thriving free community in New York. In Israel, there is a traditional calendar. So if one walks, when I walk into the bank or the post office in Israel, on the right side is the Jewish date, on the left side, the secular date. So it's following, it's again bifocal in that way, and it's according to the, the traditional calendar that is there. But it also, the idea of the Israeli state was something that was really launched by individuals who were not particularly beholden to tradition. And so there was also a kind of infusion of the calendar, the traditional calendar, with other kinds of days that weren't there, like a day of independence and a memorial day. And what's particularly interesting, and so much touching on your question, are the interpretations of the Israeli calendar. So for one, cal one scholar, James Young, for example, the Israeli calendar is a revolutionary calendar, meaning it is not beholden to tradition. It's that that revolutionizes and allows for, in your question, Ahmad, the youth, the younger expression that was really breaking away to show their own independence by this infusion of new days. And for other scholars, Don Handelman, myself, are seeing the Israeli calendar as unbelievably conservative given the radicalness of, of those who shaped Israel, meaning that in Israel, the beginning of the day continues to be at night. The beginning of the week continues to be on Sunday and ending with the Sabbath day and to use the traditional names, so on and so forth. The calendar that we're looking at there is not quite as self-evident always as it may seem. It may have revolutionary elements in it if one both looks for those and has, has certain templates in mind or is predisposed to look at it in a certain way. Commemoration generally has been one of the aspects of the calendar that has received far more attention. And um, what Professor Iser is referring to is Holocaust Remembrance Day, which in Hebrew is called Yom HaShoah, the Day of the Shoah, which takes place either in April or May. But it really doesn't take place in April or May because it's calculated according to the Jewish calendar that we've just seen, even in the United States. It's the only day, as far as I know, that is choreographed as an honored, as a special day in the calendar that's not according to the Gregorian calendar, but the Jewish calendar, which is the 27th day of the month of Nisan. And so in the commemoration of that day, in, the in Congress at the Holocaust Museum, it shifts. Some days it's in mid-April, some days it's in early May, and that's because it's always fixed in the Jewish calendar remarkable aspect of American life and culture. But that's a, another story. But back to the, then the day. 
So the day of the 27th day of the month of Nisan is a story in its own right because the Holocaust Remembrance Day is basically calculated according to the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. For those that are familiar with the Holocaust, fortunate that we need to be, but but we try to um, for various reasons. So um, the Warsaw Ghetto was emptied of most of its population by, by fall of 1942, and then uh, deportation started again in January of 43. There was armed resistance to that for the first time. And then the Germans decided to annihilate the ghetto uh, with more deportations on the day before Passover of 1943. So that morning, where evening was going to be Passover, they came into the ghetto, and then there was full-fledged resistance and drove the Germans out. Even as I speak about it, one can you know, feel a measure of what must have been the exhilaration at that moment. And so those who, who were in Israel after the war, which included a number small number of the survivors, there was only a small number, small number of the survivors of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising then argued that Holocaust Remembrance Day should take place on Passover because that was when the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising broke out. (laughs) And yet there was enough traditional sentiment in Israel to feel how could you do that to Passover? Passover is a time of, of, of joy, not of, not of the Holocaust. And even though it was an uprising in which there was an exhilaration, it would be seen to tarnish the joy of that holiday. So there was tremendous conflict around this. And uh, uh, in addition to that, the entire month of Nisan in which Passover comes... Again, you know, it's anchored there in, in the month called Nisan. It's a month that's considered to be even more joyous than Adar. So the whole month is, for those who are religious, is, is you, you don't have sad observances. If there's a funeral, we can't prevent funerals, at least yet, until um, the Messiah comes. And um, if there's a funeral, you don't give eulogies because that would augment the sadness of what's there, and other kinds of practices for the entire month. So the conservative rabbinical group said, not only can we not have it on Passover, we can't have it on the whole month. So it went back and forth, and the argument locking horns between the leaders of Israel who were not religious, but some heavyweights who were, and they compromised we won't have it on Passover, and we will not put it in the center of the month of Nisan, but we'll move it toward the edge, the 27th day. So the, the, conf, the, the, day, the day of Holocaust memory is itself a witness to this competing tug of war 
between trying to see um, the calendar as revolutionary or as conservative, and particularly as made revolutionary by the Holocaust or, or continuing to conserve in the face of the Holocaust. That for most, they didn't have paper and they didn't have calendars, as far as I know, as far as I know. I mean, in looking, if you look at, if you look at testimony, and this is how I, this is one of the uh, precipitating forces for my being interested in this, was my previous project, um, uh, it was looking at early post-war testimony, and a particular project conducted by a psychologist named David Boder, who went to displaced persons camps in 1946, and interviewed displaced 130 displaced persons, recorded those, they could be heard still today, and, um, um, and something like 90 Holocaust survivors. And when he was, he was interviewing, he would often ask, this is in 46, not something like 14 months, 16 months after the end of the war, he would ask, so when did this take place? And they, most of the time, would say, I don't know. And he would say, well, well, what do you think? And they would say, I'm sorry, I don't know. We didn't have a way to keep track of time. So I think for most, they somehow try to endure with that inchoate sense of time and with just a sense of preserving physical and psychological integrity as best they could. So in a way, the, 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 the studies of the Holocaust and time that don't integrate the calendar are in a way mirroring that dimension. Um, and then there are those who tried by kind of impressionistically and made mistakes. Um, so there are stories of those who they think that they get information from someone, hearsay, um, or they knew a date at a certain time, and they've been keeping track in their head, but they're a couple days off. So stories of those that, for example, begin to keep Passover two days early with no eating of leavened bread or leavened products, for example, and then they end two days early only to find out, or actually the case that I'm thinking of, it was actually a week early, then they found out just actually when Pesach, the Passover had started, so they have another week that they've, that has been brought to them, and under these circumstances is mind-boggling, you know, that they would do, and they were not, they were doing it as best they could. So there's lots of mistakes made, and the general move was to, at best impressionistically, it seems, do this. Then there were, um, I've heard about this mostly in concentration camps, um, because in hiding you either, you either had someone or you had a calendar or you didn't, or you went according to the Gregorian calendar um, if, you, if the Gentiles had that, um, if you were in any proximity with them. But in the concentration camps, w there are numbers of documented stories, either through, mostly by oral means, it seems, but now written up or in oral testimony of individuals who had the entire calendar in their head. 
um, and they would go around, they would either be self-appointed or they would be appointed by uh, leaders of the concentration camp community to go around and inform the others. So when I've talked to Elie Wiesel about this, he said, in Auschwitz, there was someone that came every Friday afternoon, and he would say, he would point, go to each and say, you know, the Sabbath is coming. He's going to be here tonight. This person made the rounds each time. So, and then the, in the concentration camp, the date was often known more closely by, it seems, incoming deportees. So they would arrive, and they would then communicate this to others who would carry that on. So there was, there was a kind of intermediary link to the world that still preserved time intact. Um, so definitely, I mean, great, again, great question, because that oral, non-written, non-paper dimension is clearly a very important one. And I don't really, I mean, it's, it's great. I don't really, I mean, I have that integrated in with the written, but maybe we can talk. Maybe it should be a separate dimension entirely. I know everyone joins me in thanking you for a really very stimulating discussion. Thank, thank you very much. Let me just end by looping back in a 30-second comment on what I mentioned at the beginning. Right, the conflict between the month of Adar, which is that that we're supposed to be joyous in the Jewish tradition, and this study of the Holocaust. So I think what the calendar helps us do in this way is to keep a sense of proportion. Meaning if the month of Adar is telling us, when the Adar comes, you're supposed to be joyous. It's telling us really the, the underlying message is the Holocaust is not reality. Meaning, we do not live a reality according to the evil of the Holocaust. That is there. It deserves to be studied. It deserves to be memorialized. It deserves to be responded to. But it is not the measure of life. And the measure of life is rather the joy of being able to inspire life, to be able to, as Adar leads to, um, Purim, which is the celebration of friendship, the connection of the community, the devotion of good deeds to the poor, those are really the basis of life. And so it really is a message of, especially for those of us who find ourselves attracted to the subject, drawn to the subject, but, but are aware of its scarring immensity, that keep a sense of proportion of what truly is the integral segments of life. Thanks again.